morning, church. It's great to be here with you today. Uh, as we continue to memorize Scripture, one of the realities I thought about this week was Scripture memory. Is when you're memorizing Scripture, one of the things that it really requires for you to do is it requires for you to confront the Scriptures throughout the week at various times of the day. Because you're trying to remember this verse that you're studying. And so I've found it to be really helpful, uh, just if for anything else, that reason at all. It keeps the Word of God fresh on our minds and on our hearts throughout the day. And so our verse for this month is 1 John 4, 7, and 8. And we have one more Sunday together. So let's say it together. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love, 1 John 4, 7, and 8. And believe it or not, this week at prayer meeting, we actually sang that verse. There's a song for that verse, and we sang it this week, so uh, it's a helpful reminder, and some of you, maybe when you say it, that song uh, comes to your mind. So over the course of last week, this week, and next week, we're going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And last week, we took a huge bite. We took chapters 1 through chapters 9 and broke it down. And this week, we'll take a smaller bite. We'll take chapters 10 and 11. And next week, we'll take an even smaller bite and look at the heart of the matter in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. All of this leading up to our Advent series, which will start soon. as We'll be preparing our hearts and minds to celebrate the birth of our Savior Jesus Christ. And so last week, the conclusions that we came to in chapters 1 through 9 is really the teacher of the book, the commonly held or commonly accepted or considered teacher of the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon. Uh, The teacher identifies himself as a man named Koheleth. And so we talked about that. We looked at the three major themes of the book last week, which were everything is meaningless, fear God, enjoy life. Those were the three major themes that we broke down from the book of Ecclesiastes. And then we concluded by expressing the importance of the book. Why is Ecclesiastes an important book? Why is it in the Bible? How is it useful for us? And we found that Ecclesiastes teaches us that we can make much of a meaningless life by making much of God. And that's why the book is important. Now it's interesting We are looking, and the writer, the teacher of this book, is looking at some of the major questions that we have about life. And it just so happens that last week, one of our Sunday school teachers, uh, her name is Bev Kreider, many of you know her, she teaches our elementary girls, she asked a question, they're going through the book of Habakkuk, and in their Bible lesson, she asked the girls to write questions that they would like to ask to God. And, and I want to read their questions. There's seven of them. And they're very insightful. And some of them sound, dare I say, even a bit ecclesiastical in their nature. Question number one that, that one of the young girls would have asked, one of our elementary girls, these are our girls, question one that they would ask if they could ask a question to God. Why did you make the tree and why did you not destroy it? Interesting. Question two, why did you not destroy sin right away? Wow. Question three, how were people made from people? 
There's some moms and dads in here that need to get on that one. <laughs> Question four. Why do we cry when we're happy? It's a good question, right? Question five, and, and these, these next few are really the ones that really, I, I think, have Ecclesiastes written all over them. How are you alive, speaking about God, how are you alive, God, if we can't see you? Hmm. Question six, how can you never end if you never started? That's really, really good for Ecclesiastes, isn't it? <laughs> and question seven, why is sin bad and why does death happen? Wow. These are questions from our elementary school-aged young ladies in this church. And it, it gives us insight and evidence to see that from a very young age, we're wrestling with the, the greatest and most uh, large questions in life, who we are, why we're here, who is God, why does he do the things that he does the way that he does them. And Ecclesiastes really, it serves as a great backdrop to and a foundation for understanding wisdom literature in the Old Testament. I really think it does. And the, you think about in chapters 1 through 9, the teacher has just finished telling us that the pursuit of unanchored wisdom the pursuit of unanchored wisdom is fleeting. It's a chasing after the wind. It's meaningless. And certainly as we take stock in the wisdom literature of the Bible, primarily found in the book of Proverbs, we must understand this, that wisdom literature is not always prescriptive regarding of how life will work. Sometimes it's more descriptive of how life might work. The authors of wisdom literature, some of which we're going to explore today in chapters 10 and 11, are giving us general principles for wise living. And sometimes what they tell us will happen doesn't always happen the way that we think it should. For instance, let's take a look at Proverbs chapter 22, 6. We've all known this one, seen this one, read this one. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And, and many of us uh, in here probably have experienced or know, you know, families that have raised their children up in the Lord and have instructed them in his ways. And perhaps they, they did not continue to follow him. So is the wisdom literature wrong? What's what's going on here? What's what's happening? And sometimes uh, we have to change our understanding and our way of how we see this literature and how we interpret it. Certainly, this is generally true. But it's not always prescriptive. In other words, it doesn't always work this way. Sometimes we train up children to love and fear the Lord, and they do depart. And this is why we must go back to the foundational principle that's relating to all wisdom and all wisdom literature. And it's, it's why the author, the primary author of the wisdom literature, Solomon, begins his book with it and continues to emphasize it throughout the book of Proverbs. The foundation of all wisdom. Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So when things don't work the way that we think they should, or perhaps the way that they look like they should according to our understandings, 
of Proverbs and wisdom literature and Ecclesiastes, we need to go back to the foundation, back to the beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This also is why wisdom literature is such a good fit for Ecclesiastes, because Ecclesiastes is showing us that in life, things don't often go as planned. And that's okay. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Set your gaze upon him, lean into him, seek wisdom and understanding from his words, and in those we find hope and peace. And the teacher has determined that through the pursuit of wisdom as an end to itself, it is meaningless. He's also concluding that wisdom is better than folly. And that's what we're going to look at today. Today, our author is saying that unanchored wisdom, wisdom that's not grounded in the fear of the Lord is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. But wisdom itself is still better than folly. And as many of us sit here, we, we know that in the wisdom literature of the Bible, there's a dichotomy between wisdom and folly. We see the division over and over again. And indeed, there is much folly in the world today. Folly in leadership, folly in relationships, in speech, in thought, in, in how we should live in the unknowns and how we should live in the knowns. There was also folly back then as well. And doing things our own way or the world's way only unites us in the folly of our own ways. Thinking or the folly of the world's way of doing things. There's a way that seems right unto the man, but the end of that way is what? Is death. And so as a fellowship, as a body of Christ, as a church, we want to unite under Jesus' way of thinking. Jesus' way of doing things. Pursue real wisdom for how we should live. And so this is our goal today then, church. Our goal today here in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and 11 is to examine these five arenas that the teacher unpacks in these chapters and see what the teacher has to say about wise living and foolish living in each of these five arenas. As we open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 10, let's take a moment and pray together. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for its power. We're thankful for the wisdom literature, Lord. We don't get to explore it too often on a Sunday morning as a body of Christ, but today, Lord, we unite around it knowing that you intend to teach us something through it. Lord, we affirm today that all of the Word of God, all of your Word is useful, is profitable for teaching, for correcting, and for training, even for rebuking, Lord, where we need that. And so, Father, we pray today as we unite around your word, as we study it together, that you would guide and direct our time. That you would change our hearts and minds and that we would leave here better than when we came in. Loving you more and loving those that you place in our pathways more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our teacher begins here right at the beginning in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 by really laying a foundation, reminding us that wisdom is more precious than folly. Look at verses 1 through 3 of Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when a fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone, 
that he is a fool. Dead flies. To start the text today. Dead flies. The intention here really of the teacher is to show us that there are some tools in this world that are good that can be spoiled if not properly harnessed and understood. And wisdom is one of those tools. Friends, wisdom is a tool, and the Bible talks about this. If, if, we, if we try to gloat up knowledge and build up knowledge in and of ourselves to build our own selves up, that's not a good thing. And, and that's why the, the writer's remembering that in our pursuit of wisdom, he's reminding us that we need to remember the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Why are we pursuing wisdom? Not to build ourselves up and to make ourselves look all wise and good. Dead flies are able to make a perfumer's ointment give off stench. That which could be used for good can become stinky if not handled properly. In verse 2, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. And in the Bible, we find the right hand associated with power and blessings and the left hand associated with judgment and negativity. And unfortunately for you all, you have three left-handed pastors. Sorry about that. I don't know what, I don't know what to say about that, but <laughs> unfortunately, outside of the book of Judges, which is a very odd book, our Berean ABF is going through it right now. And outside of the book of Judges, the rest of the Bible equates the right hand with blessing and the left hand with judgment. And the book of Judges is the only place where you see that kind of reversed. And it's, it's an interesting reality there. The teacher is telling us in verse 3 that the foolishness of a fool is not hidden or in secret. He's a fool in public. Everyone can see it because as he navigates in his day-to-day life, it is apparent in his actions. Have you, ever, have you ever seen that before? I mean, I kind of equate it. If you're walking through the amusement park or walking through a crowd with a young child, you know how a young child, when they're in a new place, they're distracted by everything, and, and, and they're walking into everybody, and walking in front of everybody's pathway, and you're like, would you pay attention to where you're going? Just look where you're going. Everybody knows that this is new to them, and, and they're just walking around with their eyes up and running into all of these things, and that's how he's saying a fool lives all the time. And people look at them and they say, they're a fool, because they're showing it by their actions. And so his conclusion is the, in the first three verses is, be wise, don't look, or act like a fool. And both wisdom and foolishness stem from the orientation of our hearts, and the fear of God leads to wise living, while the fear of man leads to foolish living. The fear of God leads to wise living, the fear of man leads to foolish living. And now he's going to continue to unpack these five arenas. And the first is wisdom for relationships. Look down at verses 4 to 7. How do we live in relationship with people when people who are in power over us often are foolish and misuse their office or misuse their power? Look at verses 4 to 7. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, Do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offense to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. For I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking 
the ground like slaves. Folly exists in the highest of places. Do we see this today? Yeah. Absolutely. Folly exists in the highest places. The highest places of leadership. So how are we to live? How are we to operate when this is true of many of our relationships? Many of the people that the Lord places in authority over us, for whatever reason, act like fools. It's just the reality of the world that we live in, but we're called to respond a certain way in those relationships. And there's a few principles here. The first principle is in verse 4. Remain calm and patient when facing persecution and folly from those who are in authority over you. Remain calm and patient. You know, I think uh, maybe perhaps for you, sometimes for me, my first inclination is to want to do what? Complain. But they're not a good leader. They're horrible. They do this. They do that. They do all these things. Remain calm. Remain patient. When those who are in leadership or in authority over you are foolish. The second principle really is seen in verses 5 through 7. Life is not fair. Neither are our relationships. And you know, this one got hammered. This gets hammered home in our house. And my wife, she's really good at reminding our children. And I try to remind them too sometimes. Life is not fair. It's not, and not everybody's going to get the same thing. Not everybody gets the same lot in life. Not everybody gets the same amount of M&Ms. Sometimes there's an odd number and there's three children. It's not going to happen. Sometimes one child's going to get to go out with mom and the other two have to stay home with boring old dad for the whole day. That, that, that's going to happen sometimes. It's okay. Life's not fair and neither are our relationships. And due to these realities, those who lead will inevitably be imperfect. But there's wisdom available for them as well. In these first two arenas, relationships and leadership, they flow very nicely together. Because in the first, we see how we are to relate to those who are in authority over us, even when they mishandle their position. And in the next one here, when we talk about leadership, the next arena communicates wisdom for how we should act if we're in positions to lead. Take a look at verses 8 through 11. Wisdom for leadership. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage for the charmer. So there's folly that exists in leadership. Leaders do things, and in their great doings of things, they often forget some of the details. And so in this text, in these verses, there's three principles of wisdom for effective leadership. The first is this. Remember, in verse 8, remember where you dug the pit. Learn from the adversities you faced while you were digging it, right? Don't forget where you dug the pit. That's at the very beginning. He who digs a pit will fall into it. Why? Because he's forgotten what he's done. Do not forget. Don't neglect or forget the work that you have already done. The folly is in forgetting what has already been accomplished. So if you go out one day and you dig a big pit, 
don't go out the next day and walk as if you didn't. <laughs> You're going to fall right into it. But sometimes, friends, we do this. We forget what the Lord has already been doing through us. And we continue to do the same thing over and over and over again, forgetting what's already been accomplished. There's another principle in verses 9 and 10. Anticipate, plan, prepare. You'll find your task will go a lot smoother if you prepare beforehand. We see this where it talks about sharpening your axe before you chop the wood. The wood cuts a lot easier when the axe is sharpened, yes? Yes. When the saw is sharp, we don't have to go back and forth as hard. It does the cutting by itself. Uses a saw that's sharp, that's smooth, isn't it? You go back and forth, that's smooth. Sharpen, plan, prepare. It goes the same way in teaching. Whether you're teaching a classroom of students or a classroom of adults or you're coaching on a field, uh, children or youth, uh, don't get upset and frustrated if they can't understand what you're trying to teach. I hear this so often. Oh, they're so dumb. They can never figure it out. These kids can't figure it out. They're just, they just, I don't know what's wrong with them. Could be something's wrong with you. I say that to myself, find a better way to teach it, right? Find a better way to teach it. I, if, if folks aren't understanding, that's not on the folks. That's on me. I got to find a better way to communicate it, to share it. And don't, don't blame them if you can't figure out what, what, they're trying to, what you're trying to teach them. Figure out a better, more clearer way to teach it. And finally, this one. And this is interesting. This is at the very end. There's this, look at verse 11. We all love snakes. If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. Avoid procrastination in the scary and difficult tasks that the Lord brings you. Because if, if your job is to charm a snake, and you're too afraid of the snake to charm it, and somebody comes along thinking the snake's charmed, but you haven't gotten to it yet because you were too afraid, and they reach their hand in there and get bit, what good are you? What good are you? The snake charmer's no good. The snake charmer's no good to anyone if a snake's going around biting people. No good to anyone. Stop fearing the snake and get the thing tamed. Tame the snake. Yeah, I know the snake's scary, but just do it. And you know, in all of our lives, there are these snakes. As we sit here today, it's not a serpent in a, we don't have baskets with serpents in them. Hopefully none of you do, maybe you do. Somebody asked me if we were going to practice snake handling today. I said, no, <laughs> not doing that. But for every one of us in here, there's a task or something the Lord has brought into your life that's fearful. Something that you haven't yet decided to move forward with. Maybe you've procrastinated with because it's kind of scary. Maybe there's a broken relationship. Maybe uh, it's something at your job. Maybe it's a discussion you have to have with somebody that's really, really hard. Don't put off and avoid and procrastinate on those difficult things until it's too late. Go ahead and get to doing them. Get to doing them. The Lord's going to protect you. He's going to guide you and take care of you in that. And so the leader, the teacher here, he's talking about wisdom for relationships. He's talking about wisdom for leadership. And in the next arena... He's going to address our speech and our thought. And again, it flows very nicely from the first two. Whether we're under foolish leaders or trying to lead others wisely, how should we speak or think 
in either situation. So look here at the next section in verses 12 to 15. Verses 12 to 15, wisdom for speaking. Verses 12 to 15, wisdom for speaking. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what it is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. There is wisdom and there is folly in the way that we think and in the way that we speak. And the teacher here is giving us insight in how to speak wisely. Fools say a lot. That's If you want to sum up verses 12 to 15, it's that. Fools say a lot. Their talk is confusing. No one can make sense of it. They ramble on and on and on. They go around in circles, and by the time they're done, you walk away saying, what did we just talk about for the last hour? And you laugh because many of you have been in these situations. They give little direction. There's little that's clear to follow. And, and I will say this, in, in, my, in my career as a coach in particular, I've watched this be true. And in my career as a pastor, as I've gotten around men that can really preach the word, I've seen this to be true as well. The Lord puts people in our lives who are more advanced and wiser than us. Draw near to them and learn from them. There is a reason they are there. And when I first started coaching as a young coach, it would take me two pages worth of text to teach something to my guys. And I would ramble on and on and on. They would stand there for 10 minutes, and then we'd have three minutes left to do a drill. Right? I had 15 minutes, 12 minutes of me talking, three minutes of them actually doing something. As you grow as a coach and get better, guess what? That flips. The pendulum flips. And you learn how to say a ton of information in just a few words. Jesus teaches us those things. He does it with our theology and with our teaching as well. When we're young in the faith and we're learning new theological concepts, it takes a hard time in our minds to be able to formulate them and grasp them and to be able to speak them on our own, let alone think about even being able to teach them to another person. But as we grow and as we stay in his word and as we read, the spirit continues to work. He continues to help to grow us. And these concepts that once seemed so enormous to us, he starts to be able to show us how we can teach them to others in a way that they can understand and a way that they can, then can grasp it and use it for their own lives. Put yourselves in your fields, wherever, whatever field the Lord has you in, put yourselves close to the experts in your field and learn from their wisdom. Learn from their wisdom. And when it comes to your spiritual walk and your walk with Jesus, find the people that teach the Bible the best, that are in the Word. Find it, and there's lots of opportunities to find them today. There's lots of places you can go. There's, there's lots of great websites where there's men and women who love Jesus and teach the Word. Watch how they teach. Watch how they lead. Learn from them. I've learned so much from the older men that the Lord has placed in my life. And I watched this happen. Young coaches, young teachers, they say a lot, but they get little in the way of execution. The seasoned coaches, they say just a little bit. And guess what? Their guys execute to the ninth degree. 
It's beautiful to watch. And so a principle for wise speaking from verses 12 to 15, speak small and clear. Speak small and clear. Don't ramble on and on and on and on and on and go around in circles. Figure out what you want to say. Figure out a very clear and small way to say it. Speak clearly and speak small. And it's helpful. Now in verses 16 to 20, the teacher moves from showing us principles on how we can speak wisely to one another to principles of how we can think wisely. So look at verses 16 to 20. Woe to you, O land, when your child is a king and your princes feast in the morning. Woe to you. Hold on to that one. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter. Wine gladdens life. What? Money answers everything. We'll get to that verse later. (laughs) Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. So verses 16 and 17, what we see there is that youth and inexperience are detrimental to leadership. They're detrimental. That doesn't mean young folks cannot lead. That is not what that's saying. It's not saying young, places, young people should never be in places of leadership. It doesn't say that. But what it's telling us is that when there are people in positions of leadership that are young and inexperienced, inevitably there will be failure. That is part of it. It's, it's like, like feasting in the morning. That was not wise. It's not wise to get up and to feast in the morning. Wait till later on to do that. And so there's some principles here for wise thinking. The first in verse 17 kind of goes along with Uh, what we talked about earlier in leadership, know the right time to feast. Know the right time to feast. Discern the proper time to act. Verses 17 and 18, they're closely related. Know the right time to feast. Discern the proper time to act. Wisdom for thinking. These things require thought. When is the right time to send that difficult email? When is the right time to make the phone call to that person who you've been wrestling with in a relationship and you know you need to make the call but you don't know when the right time is? You have to pray. These things need to be done with purpose and intentionality. And and there's a right time to act and a wrong time to act. Good, Good leaders, wise thinking, discerns the right time to act. Verse 19 It may be perhaps one of the most misunderstood verses in the book of Ecclesiastes. It really might be. And and it could be viewed in two ways. And I want to explain both those ways to you because there's good men and women on both sides of, of this argument on how to interpret this verse. It could be viewed that these three things, bread, wine, and money, are a reward for those who think wisely and know how to use them. That's one way that it could be viewed and how some interpreters had viewed this, that people who think wisely understand the proper place for bread, that it's made for laughter, 
They understand the proper place for wine, that it's made to gladden social environments, and they understand the proper place for money, that it can be useful, or resources, it can be useful for some things. And that's how some interpreters take verse 19. Or, the other side, some take verse 19 to be viewed as a fatal end to thinking that is folly. So in other words, if all you think in life is that bread is for laughter, wine is for gladdening, and that money is going to solve all things, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. And so there's, there's both schools of thought there. Personally, I like the second view. I think it fits better in the context of what the writer in Ecclesiastes is trying to do, showing us that these things are not a means to an end. They shouldn't be viewed as the end themselves. And fools look sometimes at bread, they look at wine, and they look at money as the answer to all things, and that's a bad place to be. Foolishness chasing after the wind. So verse 20 holds the final principle for wise thinking here. This one was tough, right? Avoid private criticism in thought or speech against those who are in authority over you. What did it say in verse 20? Wasn't that interesting? Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. No matter how bad of a job you think he's doing. Can you see where there's so much foolishness in our world today? Just read that line, friends. And think about how often this happens in our world. How many people are cursing the king today? And I'm not just talking about Jesus. Anyone who is in authority over us, the king. Nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature will tell the matter. Just avoid it. It's not helpful. I have a quote in my office. I see it every single day. Be positive. Be a positive part of the solution. Or be silent. Every single, there's no need for negativity in anything. I have never found negativity to be helpful in any arena of my life. We can be positive, we can be a positive part of the solution, or we can be silent until the Lord gives us the wisdom to be a positive part of the solution. I think there's important principles that are affirmed here in the wisdom literature and in these portions of Ecclesiastes. And so in the 11th chapter now, the teacher's going to transition from wisdom in the arenas of relationship, leadership, speech, and thought. And he's going to move to two particular areas of our life. How do we live in the times of our life where there's so much uncertainty? And certainly in our lives, there is a lot of uncertainty. So what are some principles for living in the uncertainties of life? And then secondly, in chapter 11, he's going to deal with what are some principles for living in the certainties of life, where things are certain. So let's take a look at the first six verses of chapter 11. How do we live in a way that pleases God when there's so much uncertainty in life? It's a good question. He's going to unpack it here in chapter 11. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south 
or to the north in the place the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your right hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both or alike will be good. So there's five principles I see here for wise living in the light of uncertainty. One, take on life as God unpacks it before you and live by faith. Take on life as God unpacks it before you and live by faith. Cast your bread upon the waters. You don't know where the Lord's going to take it. You don't know what he's going to do with it. There's much uncertainty in this life. Take on life as God unpacks it before you and live by faith. Verse 3, even as we anticipate life's difficulties, we still cannot control their effects or their results. The clouds are full of rain. We can see a storm is coming. And they empty themselves on the earth. And the tree is going to fall to the south or to the north. And where it falls, there it's going to lay. And we can anticipate life's difficulties, but we cannot control the results or the effects of what those difficulties may bring. So do not wait until you think you have all the answers. Go ahead and act. Verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow. If you just wait until you know where the wind's going to blow, you're never going to sow. And, and so oftentimes in life, we're paralyzed because we don't have all the answers. We want more answers. More answers. More answers. We want more information. Keep digging. Keep getting more information. But then we never do anything. And he's saying, look, don't, don't. Don't wait until you have all the answers. Go ahead and act. Now we're seeing something of beauty happening here in verse 5. And we want to read verse 5 again slowly. And when you read verse 5 slowly, I want you to think about Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus in John 3. And see if you hear anything or see anything that sounds familiar. Look at verse 5. We'll read it, read it slowly. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child... So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. What does that sound like? Jesus is interacting with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Beautiful, beautiful connection. You wonder if when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, if the Ecclesiastes is what was informing some of his words as he was teaching Nicodemus in that chapter. Commentator Michael Eaton summarizes uh, verse 5 beautifully in his commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes. He says this, quote, The life of faith does not remove the problem of our ignorance. Rather, it enables us to live with it. Faith flourishes in the mystery of providence. It does not abolish it. End quote. Isn't that beautiful? Faith flourishes in the mystery of providence. It does not abolish it. There's a few more principles here. Embrace the unknown 
Lean into it as God's gift to you. Don't fear the unknown. God brings us things in our life. We're not going to have all the answers to all the questions. Embrace it. Lean into it. See what Jesus is going to do through it. There's some beautiful things that Jesus has in store for us as we lean into the unknown and depend on him in our lives. And sometime, I don't know if, if you've seen this, but for me, I've most clearly seen God's faithful and steady hand guiding and providing as I step out, even with great insecurity and uncertainty, fully depending on him. And perhaps you've seen the same thing in your life. And so with this in mind, consider the lesson from verse 6, which really summarizes all of the verses before it in chapter 11. Whatever the Lord brings should be approached with care, intentionality, and purpose. For we do not know that which he intends to prosper. Sometimes the Lord brings us some really interesting things. Jesus is always working. And he'll bring an interesting relationship into our pathway. And, and you've probably experienced your first response to it is to run the other way. It's scary. That's a weird person right there. And we don't know why the Lord's brought them. We don't know what he intends to do with them. This happens in my life a lot. And yet they don't go away. They keep showing up. They're at work every single day. And we're saying, you are weird. Go away. And the Lord just keeps bringing them. And it's hard for us to get along with them. And we don't like them. Maybe this is your aunt. I don't know who it is in your life. So sorry, aunts. I have beautiful, wonderful aunts. But there is somebody or something in your life that the Lord has placed there that's uncertain. It's, it's, it's hard. It's difficult. There's a relationship or a situation, and whatever he brings, believe that he's brought it with intention and purpose to help you grow because he loves you, and he wants you to grow. And, and see how maybe he intends to use it in your life to help you to grow. So these are some principles for living in the uncertainties. How can we live in the certainties? Let's look at the end of chapter 11, verses 7 to 10. There are things in life that are certain. We're all going to get old. Yeah, you can put whatever age on old that you want. All right? We're all going to get old. Most of us are going to experience death unless the Lord comes back first. There are some certainties in life. Light is sweet. It is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all of these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Four principles for wise living in that which is certain. And the first principle is very clearly repeated in the New Testament. Enjoy, experience, and walk in the light. Where do we see that in the New Testament? Where do we hear this principle of how we live in the things that are certain? First John this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we are in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, 
we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Walk in the light, friends. In the certainties of life, walk in them. Enjoy them. Principle 2, verses 7 and 8, is for our seasoned saints. We have some seasoned saints in here today. As we move into old age, we should do so with joy, even in view of difficult seasons. Wow. That's a good one, I think. It's a good one for all of us. All of us are moving into old age. Again, I'll let you define what that means. But as we do so, we should do so with joy. Finally, in verses 9 and 10, for those of us, those of you, maybe all of you feel this way in here that are still in your youth. And again, I'll let you put your own number on what youth is and what it means. The teacher gives some advice that many who are older and more seasoned may seem to be unwise. But notice that the advice is given with a caveat. Look at number three. Enjoy life, follow your heart and eyes, but understand there will be an accounting. There will be an accounting. We look at that, and some of us who are older and more seasoned in life see that, and we say, be careful. That follow your heart thing. Watch out. Follow your eyes. Be careful. Remember, all of this is undergirded by what principle for wisdom? What's the foundation of all wisdom? The fear of the Lord. So as you rest in the fear of the Lord, as you're living in the fear of the Lord, enjoy life, follow your heart and eyes, and understand there will be an accounting. And then verse 10, closely following. Be careful not to allow anyone to steal your joy, especially in Christ as we talk today in the church, and take good care of your body. Take good care of your body. Simple right there at the very end. Remove vexation from your heart. Don't allow anyone to steal your joy. Don't be confused in your heart. And put away pain from your body. Take good care of your body. For the youth and the dawn of life are vanity. So how might our lives look in light of these realities? And really, today's uh, scripture, we don't spend a lot of time in the wisdom literature. The wisdom literature is very, very applicable when we look at it in light of how we might use this in our lives. And there was a lot of principles today. I felt like this week as I was preparing that this was just one big application. <laughs> one giant application in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and 11. Here are some principles for wise living that we can follow as we live out our daily lives. So I thought a good way to conclude our time together would be for praying for those who are in leadership over us. Because there is a, they have a difficult task before them, do they not? Our leaders face a difficult, difficult task. And I thought, what a better way to close today than to actually break up in our sections. I'm going to have assignment for you here and explain it very quickly. And pray for those who are in leadership over us. And you can see on the screen, I've put a number of our leaders, our local and government leaders. And I'm going to assign each section a group of leaders this section over here, you guys are going to pray for our church and our church leaders, our elders, our pastors, our staff, uh, all of those who are leading and volunteering in ministries. So you guys are going to pray for our church over here. This group here, you're going to pray for our federal government leaders, okay? Our president, 
our vice president, speaker of the house, chief justice, attorney general, the president's cabinet. That's going to be this section here. This section over here, you guys are going to pray for our state government leaders. And their names are up there. Governor Tom Wolf. Uh, there's others, Josh Shapiro, you can see their names up there. You're going to pray for our state government leaders. And this section over here, you guys are going to pray for our local governments and our local government leaders and uh, our school boards, our councils, our borough councils, all of those things. And, and I'm going to ask specifically today as well that we might have a group of men uh, and women that feel compelled to pray to surround Josh Mellinger, he just won locally won a seat on a local borough, and I think we need to surround him in prayer this morning as he prepares to step into that leadership position that the Lord has brought into his life. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Neil, one of our elders, Neil Feltham, he's worked together to have a group of folks who are going to be just kind of going around and helping you group up and pray. Have somebody open and somebody close. Not everybody has to pray. Keep it flex. Keep it chill. All right, you find a few people in your seat around you and you just pray for your assigned area. We have some elders that might come around and join you and help open or close. We have some prayers that might come around, join you, help open and close. So I'm going to ask you to go into a time of prayer in your section for your assigned area and then I'll close us from the front. All right, let's get to it. 